Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, a pleasure to be talking to you from the palatial Trade Geek Studios here in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, by the way, they're not palatial. It is literally my home office. And I've taken down my Led Zeppelin records behind me so that I have a white wall because it's probably a little bit better aesthetically. Um, also, every time I get this much of a close up on my face, I begin to realize just how badly you either shave this beard off or start to color it. I'm not entirely certain. I uh, am very happy that you've all joined us today for what is going to be, if nothing else, a thought-provoking conversation with one of my favorite people, uh, regardless of industry in the world, Dan Dan the Import Man, Dan Swartz, Dangerous Dan. Uh, Dan and I have worked together for 688 years, uh, and we are currently at Crow. Uh, most of you should know that by now, uh, Crow LLP, where we dispense advice on trade and customs issues. I should uh, actually say that Dan dispenses advice on trade and customs issues, and I mostly just run around the country buying people drinks and getting them to sign contracts, while Dan does all the work, manages all the hard stuff. So, uh, hi, Dan. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Pete. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, I don't think you had much of a choice. So this is um, this is a very uncomfortable thing for Dan to do because he's very humble. So he doesn't like to talk about himself. But I felt like it was about time that they got to see the man behind the curtain. Well, the truth is this was a setup. You just told me it was a conference call. Yeah, it's true. I totally walked you into this. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just between you and I, the, the amount of feedback we get from videos as opposed to audios is pretty incredible. So just so you know. Uh, Dan is a uh, senior manager in the right hand. He is the, um, I don't know, it's hard to come up with metaphors. Like I was going to say the Tonto to my Lone Ranger, but that's not, that's not a good one. Um, the shrimp in my gumbo, maybe the, the gin in my gin and tonic, I suppose. But he's, uh, he's been a, a steadfast influence in every single professional position I've had going back to 2002. Is that sound right? Yeah, 2002. Yeah, so we're coming up on 17 years together, and I am not ashamed to say that Dan is probably the longest relationship I've ever had, which um, I guess is more of an indictment on me than anything. But um, you know, correct me if I said, so Dan and I originally met when we were both at Expeditors. I was at Tradewind, he was at EI, and what were you doing at EI at that point? I was a supervisor in the customs brokerage department in San Francisco. And what sorts of clients were you working on? Not names, but the kind of products. The team I handled was uh, tasked with a lot of miscellaneous accounts for the company. Uh, tend to be higher profitability accounts, uh, things that required more thought, time, and effort in uh, being able to do the entries for the clients. We mm -hmm. charge a premium for the service, but I did everything from help import uh, live monkeys uh, for west coast universities to uh clothing products for the gap uh, -huh. uh being in san francisco uh, we did a lot for the high-tech industry as well and uh, particularly that time period it was uh when the internet was exploding and you had everybody who was importing everything from uh pet products if you remember like petopia they were yeah. one of the internet retailers everybody was finding a way of marketing and retailing uh, common goods on the internet. And we found ourselves in handling the brokerage on a lot of that. Yeah. And you were a broker at the time. You're already licensed, right? Right. Yeah. I've been a licensed broker since 1998. Wow. All right. So 
uh, I got my license in 98. It, it took me a little longer to get it, but so we both been licensed for the same time and uh, worked for a very long time together. Now I had gotten a phone call from, I think it was Kevin Nidwaza at Expeditors. They had a really smart guy that was bored in the brokerage operation and you want, you wanted more. And, um, so I needed somebody badly and, uh, like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll meet this guy. So I came out there and I met you in San Francisco. I don't remember, like, did we all have lunch or something? So here's the, 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 the backstory on that. You came in to do a seminar for expediter clients there in San Francisco. It was the first time that we had met and, uh, I've ever heard you speak. I've never heard somebody speak to clients the way that you did that day. Yeah, is that, that a, was really is that an insult. <laughs> <laughs> you could take it whatever way you want, <laughs> but it was it was uh, very interesting. You know, I I've had Dick Rossetti come through there and present to clients. Uh, I've attended other seminars. I've never heard anybody speak the way that you do uh, on trade issues. You know, I was taken by that, and I was was bored. I had been there cutting entries in one way or another for a number of years at Expeditors. I was looking for my next opportunity to grow in my career. Um, and you had just joined Tradewind, I think a year before that. We were uh, really getting the Tradewind practice uh, back going at full steam again. And I was very interested in what you guys were doing there. Uh, and I don't know if you remember this, but after that seminar, I was bugging you pretty regularly with emails and calls, uh, seeing if you had any openings there at Tradewind. It took some time, but I think within about nine months, maybe a year, uh, you had offered me a position to come on board there at Tradewind to set up the supply chain security group. And that's where things get interesting, right? Because you got to work with some pretty cool people. I did. Uh, Ed Quas uh, served as a former assistant commissioner of U.S. Customs. Um, he had been in customs for well over 30 years. Dick Rossetti was a director of Office of International Trade at, at Customs. Um, my direct manager, Charles Sanders, a great guy. He served as a supervisor and regulatory audit uh, for a better part of a decade. Uh, all three gentlemen had left the government uh, to come join Tradewind and provide advocacy services, consulting services for clients on international trade issues. I was just there as a young, uh, wet behind the ears, customs broker who had been cutting entries, trying to learn and absorb everything I could from those guys uh, and learned a great deal, particularly around auditing um, and had the opportunity to travel on site to visit clients and work on projects with them and, and really learned a great deal about the business. It was for me, probably one of the most important periods of my professional career was working at uh, Tradewind, especially, uh, those first several years while Dick and Ed were still around. Yeah. They were special guys. They sure Charles. were. I haven't talked to Charles yeah. in a long time. Have you talked to him lately? I have not. It's been a number of years, but the, the last time I, I had spoken with Charles, he was uh, still happy as can be working there at Fruit of the Loom uh, and living in the Bowling Green, Kentucky area and doing well and raising a family. Um, I should reach out to him. It's been a number of years. I don't know if you remember this, but his nickname at Customs was, do you remember? <sighs> Show me the money Sanders. Yeah, because <laughs> he was a he was an auditor, and I guess he was yeah. brutal. And and Charles is um you know he's a soft spoken, easygoing guy, 
I can't imagine him just, but when he got a hold of a ledger or something, the guy was a beast. Yeah, he, one of the most intelligent people I've ever had the chance to work with. By sure. Great. Yeah, those were those were amazing days. I tell people all the time how lucky we were. You know, um, between Ed and Dick, I don't think there was anyone at Customs we couldn't get a phone call with, and uh, they were very they were very good to us as far as explaining things and how the world really worked at Customs. I don't know how you felt about it. Most certainly, and again, I. I I didn't come with uh, the level of experience that like that Charles did coming into that organization. So I was really very junior in the organization. And, but I also was very cognizant of the fact of how important Ed and Dick were. Um, and I could tell that particularly from just even having conversations with Roseanne Esposito, mm-hmm. uh, who had a great deal of respect for what those two men have done in their career. Yeah. And um we had uh, had the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. Uh, this is after 9-11. Uh, Ed had set up a number of opportunities for us to go into the Ronald Reagan building and talk with folks there at Customs. In fact, we were engaged by U.S. Customs at the time to come in there and help teach their personnel how supply chains work. Think about that for a moment. That, uh, you know, before 9-11, a ship's captain would tender a manifest within 72 hours at the port upon arrival. 9-11 pushed, it was a paradigm shift, it pushed the boundaries of our borders uh, back to the origins of where these goods are being shipped from. And we saw the implementation of ISF. So people in customs really had no understanding beyond our borders how supply chains really worked at the time. And they looked to us as professionals to come in there and help coach them on that. Um, we also had the opportunity, uh, this is around the time period that China was admitted into the WTO to come to the Ronald Reagan building and get in part an education from customs as well as sharing information with them about enforcement of textile quotas and um, learning about jump teams and uh, you know, you get to learn and understand the inner workings of a large bureaucracy like that. And it really, at my point in my career, it shaped how I viewed um, a lot of the bureaucratic processes that, uh, you know, are outlaid by customs. And I had the opportunity to sit through a number of audits with Ed and Dick over the years as well, too, and uh, gain quite a bit of understanding uh, from that as well. Think about this, right? That that period of time you're talking about, there was also a huge shift at customs. They were leaving Treasury. Yes. They were going to that massive behemoth called the Department of Homeland Security. And yeah. their mission changed and all the rest of it. And that was a pretty exciting time to decide that you wanted to put your consultant boots on, man. That was uh it, it's today is a little reminiscent of that in that there was just a great deal of uncertainty mm-hmm. of I think everybody realized that there was a paradigm shift. Um, we start seeing the FDA rule out, uh, roll out the uh, Bioterrorism Act. We saw the implementation of ISF. Um, you know, there was a number of other things, implementation of CT patent fast. Things were coming down the pike very quickly. You had to be pretty flexible in understanding what the government was trying to accomplish, the rules that they were setting up, how to work within those rules. Um, and we're kind of seeing that a little bit today with the tariff issues. 
um, not necessarily an imposition of the tariffs, but how do you work around the backside of that, such as through uh, Section 232 and 301 exclusions? Yeah. Um, how do you use the miscellaneous tariff bill to your advantage? Um, you know, how to help clients out on first sale. Uh, we're seeing a little bit of, I think, what we experienced then in early 2000s. Um, it's a very dynamic business. And there's no two ways about it. So what was the strangest thing when you started working, when you, when you walked away from the operative side of brokerage, you know, that transactional side of brokerage and client service from the, the perspective of getting it in the country and getting it delivered and dealing directly on with, with customs from that perspective too? cleaning up messes, saving people. Like what was the strangest difference for you? Uh, I would say the, the, I don't know if I call it strangest, but one of the big eye-opening learning lessons I got from all that, particularly going out and do the mock compliance audits, you know, over a period of, you know, five, six years that was doing that type of work at Tradewind, I visited, I, I don't know how many different companies spending days on site, sitting with folks in accounting and finance, going through chart of accounts, uh, seeing with people in procurement and purchasing, understanding their purchasing processes for goods that are coming in from abroad. Um, going through that process and visiting all these different companies, it was a big learning experience of how companies operate. Yeah. And what are some of the best practices or commonalities of best practices that these companies share? And what are some just the downright negligent, bad practices that are inherent in business? Um, And you look at it from the context that for a lot of these companies, particularly back then, there wasn't a lot of resource or interest focused on trade compliance. That's just a reality. Um, We're at a very different time now where even mid-size entities have generally at least somebody in the organization who has a good familiarity with the rules of the road for importing. That wasn't the case 10, 15 years ago. It was a very different environment. But yeah, I would say just having the understanding how businesses operate. I mean, that was a big eye opener for me. Yeah. Um, Ditto. I, I think it's strange that every once in a while I'll be in some situation and I'll just know something about a product or a company. And there's no reason why I should. I know way too much about women's shoes and handbags. Um, and you know more about jewelry than anybody I know. You know, the things that we've had to learn about, it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, there's a, uh, a company that I'm doing work for right now that I'm really excited about. I can't mention really the, the product, but it is a fun product. It's something that I've played with before. And uh, I'm actually getting an opportunity to do some work for them. But I enjoyed that about consulting and working with clients and understanding different products, uh, different industries. Um, I've had exposure from, you know, everything from the apparel and footwear side, of course. But what I really enjoy is U.S. manufactured goods and coming in and visit clients who are still manufacturing here in the U.S. or at least doing some form of production. and also just good commercial goods that you're recognizable. You go through a store and you go, Hey, I helped that client yeah. on a country of origin marking issue, or I remember help classifying that product 
you're looking at there on the store shelf. You feel um, some sort of involvement in there, albeit very small in, in the grand scheme of things, pretty worthless. But <laughs> personally, you feel some satisfaction out of it, you know, which is pretty neat. Well, okay, so that's a great segue, Dan. So, uh, you know, we both speak to a lot of young people, uh, a lot of young people that are coming into the the into this business, I suppose. And they, you know, they see our glamorous lifestyle, Dan. They see the yes. private jets. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they see the the five-star hotels and the the fine dining at, at, at Michelin star restaurants. And they say, you know, it, it's just got to be overwhelmingly awesome, the lifestyle you guys lead. Yeah, my 200, uh, my 2005 Honda Odyssey with 236,000 miles on it is very yeah. glamorous. Yeah. Very glamorous because that car goes from like what your house to track practice to the airport and that's it. Basically, oh. yeah. yeah. Or we're squirreled away in our offices, like looking up some bizarre draconian thing. Um, so if you had to pick one thing that you really can't stand about what you and I do for a living, I'll tell you mine. It's endlessly being away from home. That's my yeah. Answer. Travel, travel's tough. Um, luckily, I'm fortunate in that I haven't had to do as much of it in the last few years as I've had earlier in my career. When I was at Trade, when I was constantly on the road, and even for the first several years at CH Robinson, I was on the road for pretty regularly. It's tough, especially with young children at home. Yeah. Fortunately, my girls are a little bit older now. Uh, uh, Gabriella. Uh, my oldest just turned 13 and um, Giselle, uh, my younger one's going to be turning 11 here in January. So they don't need me as quite as much as they used oh, yes, to. They but... do. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brag for you. Daughters are both very gifted athletes. They are. And, I'm uh, very proud of them. They are, yeah. They're pretty cool kids. Amazing runners. So that's pretty cool. Now, the one thing you love the most about what we do, what would you say that is? Uh, just every day is different. Uh, having exposure to so many different people, companies, different types of products. Um, there's no two days are the same. Uh, so that for me, being somebody who is probably a little OCD and you know requires a lot of stimuli, uh, I, I like that part of our business. Uh, I, I need to have that sense of busyness and activity. Um, I, I think I would be bored and doing a lot of other type of jobs, um, or working in other particular industries. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. Um, what, what you call, what, what you call OCD, I call it tight. I think is yeah. maybe a little neurotic, <laughs> but yeah. it's what makes you effective at your job. Um, so, okay. We're going to get to some current events here in a minute. Before I do, I have sure. three questions. I ask every guest. Are you okay. ready? First All car right, you ever on. owned. What was it? How'd you get it? What happened to it? The first what? Car. Uh, my first car was a 1994 Jeep Cherokee. Oh, dude. And I had that throughout high school. And it was a fantastic vehicle. Yeah. And we had a lot of good times in that thing. I bet, I bet it smelled like stale beer by the time. It was uh, dead. Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't smell great by the time uh, I finally traded it in for a Toyota pickup. But um, I definitely got a lot of mileage on it. Had a lot of fun partying uh, with that car. Uh, one of the little things about that car is during the nineteen it was a nineteen ninety four. God, when was the earthquake? When was the World Series earthquake? Ninety three, wasn't it? Or was it ninety four? So, I think if I forgot. No, I was still in high school, so probably 89. 
So Giants and the Oakland A's were in the World Series. Long story short, I came home from practice, pulled the Jeep into the garage, had the, the garage door open, had the hatchback of the Jeep open, went running into the house, turning on the TV. I can hear Al Michaels talking, started the, the World Series is happening. I ran off to the bathroom real quick. I walked back out and I happened to notice that the TV was off and the light in the hallway was off. And a split second later, the earthquake hit. Looking out through the garage door, I then see the, the, the garage door, the little mechanism, the little handle thing popped, and it started slamming down on the top of the hatchback of that Jeep and beat the living hell out of it. And that's when I found out that those hatchbacks are made of fiberglass. Yeah. Yeah. That's not so hot, man. Yeah. Oh, so, uh, we should we should mention also for everyone that baseball is a very important part of our relationship is, for all the yeah. guys, and and you are a, a lifelong Giants fan. I am through uh, the the really bad days at Candlestick, and also through uh, the recent World Series championships. Yeah. So that um, since we've worked together, everyone we've worked with, we've got some real problems with baseball. We have uh, Ed being a, a Yankees, Yankees fan, fan. Uh, Hector being a diehard Dodgers fan. We've yeah, yeah. we've had our arguments over the years. We have, yeah. Um, okay, second question. Yep. First job you ever had that paid you a paycheck? Do you remember how much you got paid and what were you doing for that paycheck? Uh, during the summer, I'd work at Tahoe Valley Pharmacy up in South Lake Tahoe. And I was getting paid hourly. I want to say I was probably getting somewhere around about five to seven dollars an hour. Good job. And uh, yeah, it was a family friend who owned the uh, pharmacy. He took pity on me, so I had some uh, beer money during the summer months and uh, worked there at the pharmacy, working the, the counter. Uh, it's a small town there in South Lake Tahoe, um, and you know, running prescriptions up to the hospital and that type of thing. That's cool, man. All right. And last question. If you were not doing what you do now, and I had a magic wand, if, if Uncle Pete had a magic wand, and you could have any job whatsoever, what would it be? I'd be a first baseman on San Francisco Giants. So you'd be a professional baseball player? Yes. I don't think you're big enough to be a first baseman. Man. I'm not. You're a pretty lanky guy. I don't think uh, you're built for that. I, I don't thing. got it, but that's where I'd want Second to be. base, maybe, center field. That, that's probably more your, your runner. Yeah, uh, Dan. Dan is Dan is a runner. Dan runs. Dan takes pity on the rest of us that don't quite run as much as Dan. But Dan is a serious runner. For those of you who don't know Dan very well, so thank you uh, for answering those. I, I always like the responses I get back. But it would not be a conversation with you and I without um, some disagreements and arguments about trade. So um, there's a lot going on right now in current events, and there's. Um, you know, there's, there's a couple of them I would I'd want to bring up with you. And the first one is, you know, we should probably talk about the trade war. And uh, I was very quick back in the first waning days of this thing or the starting days of it saying, come on, how long could this possibly last? You know, I mean, everybody needs each other way too much for this to go on forever. And you just sat back with your smug grin on your face and said, OK, Pete. <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah, it's gonna end real fast. And I'd say, how long do you think it's gonna take? You're like, oh, you're not gonna get anywhere for a year. You're right. So I believe um, what I said was, uh, you you said it would be resolved in about six months, and I was saying this is like an eighteen to twenty four month right. ordeal. And my favorite but, line you had was, um, 
whoever is going to get hit with a recession or whoever blinks first. Is that what you said? Yeah, that, that was my, I don't think any of that stands. So I, I think I'm equally uh, is wrong at this point as well. I don't know about that. Well, but. here, here's, I guess my point on it is I, I think the inclination of everybody going into this was that this would be a short term ordeal that this was part of Trump's negotiating ploy with the Chinese. I think it's more than that. Um, And and I I think some of the evidence to that is this first round negotiation that's occurring. This is just the first round, right? It's not going anywhere. In fact, Trump, I think came out this week and said he has no interest in pursuing the first round until after the November election of 2020. So uh, I think this is a larger, larger structural relationship issue between us and the Chinese that's not going to get resolved in any sort of trade agreement um, anytime soon. I think this is unfortunately going to be the status quo. For a while. I, I'm, and I keep telling people that dig in because it's just going to get worse and weirder. And uh, I don't think anyone's listening. I think that the the same cast of people who usually generally listen to us are listening. But there was a report, I think I forwarded to you that came out from one of the forwarders that said that 27% yeah. of American companies that they surveyed had absolutely no plan B. Had nothing. And I read that report and I thought it was funny because I don't know how much the consultant pay or uh, uh, charge for that report but I could probably done that report for half the cost and come to the same analysis because there's nothing surprising or shocking out of sure, report. Sure. Yeah. just in our day-to-day interactions that we have with clients. Everything that was brought up in that report, companies are not dropping their uh, suppliers in China and moving abroad by and large. Now there are strategically some companies are doing that, but by and large, if you look at the total entered value of goods, that's not occurring. Um, there is not a uh, big push for U.S. manufacturing. We've seen an uptick of it, sure, but you're not seeing all these stakes that are being pulled up in China and factories being opened here in the U.S. I mean, there was a number of things that were in that report that I didn't find uh, surprising or shocking. Well, here's a great indicator, right? How many conversations do we have a day with people who their hair's on fire and they're waking up in night sweats because they're paying 301 tariffs compared to how many conversations do we have with people saying, Hey, we're thinking about moving our supply chain to Thailand or Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, the overwhelming, overwhelming number of them are in that second bucket. It's like right. two for every 98, man. I mean, it's, it's, people are just suffering through it and they're acting like they never had a choice or, and again, to be fair, again, I don't know how likely them getting an exception was an exclusion for most of this stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't know when this is going to come out, but it's the 4th of December right now. And list four is still looming for the 15th. And I don't know how likely, unlikely Trump is to do it. It's after Christmas. So anything that, that it affects isn't going to affect the holiday season. So, I mean, if you were going to do it, that's the time to do it. Yeah. I, I, I think the foot is firmly planted on the accelerator. I don't see any braking occurring. I think it's uh, 
full steam ahead when it Belma comes and to Louise are morning. going off the cliff. Yeah. Yeah. Holding hands. Oh man. I'm, I am frustrated by it that it's taken this long before so many people I talk to are finally like, Oh, wow. We, we've been paying how much for how long? I had that conversation a few weeks ago where I talked to a really big company and they said, yeah, we paid 24 million in additional duties this year. And that kind of money, I mean, that is, I get it. They're multi, multi-billion dollar, blah, 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 blah. That's a lot of money. If, if, if you were to say to someone, we're going to increase your, your production costs by $24 million. I don't care if your production cost was a billion or 24 million. It is a lot of money. So, um, I don't know about you, but most of my days talking to people about, well, I do know about you. How, how do we get out of this? How do we get it back? And a lot of it is we deliver a lot of bad news these days. You know, we're giving people a lot of eat your cream corn and shut up because there's not a whole lot we can do for you. Well, uh, I think one of the things to take notice in is that none of, I don't, I didn't mean to get political, but I'll get a little political. But none of the candidates on the Democrat side, nobody has stood up and said, I am going to roll back Trump's no. tariffs. Not, not a single, single one. one of them. Yeah. Now, we've heard some people stand up and say they're not happy what it's, uh, how it's impacting certain U.S. companies or particularly uh, the agricultural uh, industries that they're being impacted by uh, retaliatory tariffs. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, is that I think we are at a new paradigm shift with regards to our relationship in Ch with China. And it reminds me a bit of our relationship with the USSR in the 1980s in some respect, that we are going to have this, I think, long battle, long drawn out battle with no guns being pointed at each other, hopefully, but uh, definitely a, a battle of will in terms of trade. And uh, we'll see at the end of the day what the economic consequence is for both the U.S. and China. But when you listen to these economists, at least the feeling I get is by and large, we have the cards in our hand. Um, and that's what I keep hearing over and over again. So I just don't, as long as Trump's there, I don't think he's going to change uh, his direction on this. And should any of the Democrat candidates be elected, uh, I don't get a sense from any of the comments that they're making that they would make a change. Yeah. Well, and this is the kind of politics we can talk about because it's policy driven. The, yeah. the reality is almost seemingly overnight, many trade unions began supporting a Republican president because he's doing what people wanted for a long time, which is protectionist policies that are supposed to save American manufacturing. But as you brought up, I don't know if I've seen a single report aside from anecdotal evidence that shows a dramatic uptick in American manufacturing because of this. Yeah. I think there's a lot of increases in American manufacturing because of, of innovation, but I don't think that a lot has been done to increase America's, you know, no, no one's making a, no one's making automotive parts necessarily in Indiana instead of Guangdong anymore. And wasn't that kind of the point? I, and I think there's kind of a weird phase right now too. In this, again, I think this is going to last possibly for years. Um, but I think we're in this weird point right now where a lot of companies are looking at their products, looking at their vendors, uh, where they can make appropriate changes. They are but I think a lot of them are also working with the vendors in China and seeing 
what they can do to alter the price on their end mm -hmm. so that they're incurring some of this cost. Uh, the companies are having to lower their profit margins a little bit and then also increase the retail price of the product. So there's kind of a three-way or a three-pronged approach that a lot of these companies are taking to address that increased 25%. Right. Um, I don't know how long they can continue to do that. Um, I think at some point, particularly with uh, business uh, for, for companies that are importing goods that don't require a lot of capital, they're not particularly technical. I think those are the ones who are going to probably be lingering on there in China much longer than those that are more capital intensive. Right. Um, that's just my hunch. No, I, I agree with you. And, you know, there's this, uh, all this, these people that are saying in the news in particular that China's just exporting more products destined for America to other countries. Right. And I guess that's true to a point, but it's hard to replace a market and the desire of Americans to consume just overnight. It's going to take a while, just like it would take a while for American companies to find some other place to make their stuff. And um, it's going to take a while, I think, for companies to truly, like you said, to feel it. And until that, this could go on for a very long time. And then, you know, not to China, 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 everything, but now we've got India lost GSP. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, this week we had Brazil and Argentina announcing for President Trump that he's going to hit him with a, a tariff on steel and aluminum. But apparently that's got to do with soybean consumption in China. And then France with these new digital taxes and they're saying Italy and Austria and Turkey, right? That's the other one. Yeah, Turkey. Yeah. Let's go after them too. Uh, we already have something going on with the European Union. USMCA really is kind of stuck, I think, for now. I also don't know what benefit at all it gives the American import community. And, you know, I, I had three sales calls today, face-to-face mm -hmm. -face with people. I've known some of these people for 20 years and, and you just sit there with them and they've all got this, this dead, miserable look on their face because the same question comes across over and over again from their, their superiors. When's this going to end? When's this going to end? Is he going to do something with Thailand or what's going to happen with, with this country or that country? And you're like, um, like I know, you know, if I knew I would have so much money, I would be doing a podcast with Dan Swartz. You know, I mean, there's the, the, the trade community has just gotten the tar kicked out of it. Well, at the same time, I think setting us up to have pretty darn good job security. It's a good time to have a license and know what the hell you're talking about right now. So can I mention two companies names without getting in trouble? Hopefully. Uh, are we working with them now? I hope not. <laughs> They're in the uh, athletic shoe industry. I just okay. want to relay a, a, an antidote. Uh, I, I took my girls out shoe shopping. Uh, you mentioned earlier that they're active runners. And mm -hmm. so we went to a, uh, a shoe place or a national chain. And I noticed on the wall where they have the display of shoes that the number of Nike shoes that they had there were very limited. Usually they have a huge section for Nike shoes, but what they were replaced with largely were shoes from Brooks and uh, New Balance. And I had been following Brooks a bit because I know that they were very aggressive um, from the outset of when these tariffs were announced. They did not wait around uh, for the shoe to drop. 
but um, yeah. uh, they they aggressively aggressively began doing a lot of production in Indonesia, and so I asked the, the the person there, the manager at the store. I said, "Hey, I noticed there's a lot fewer Nikes on the wall. What's going on?" And uh, the person said, "Well, it was a, a demand issue that uh, their product's not selling as well." And I thought that was just the most Ridiculous. bizarre response because yeah. they, they are one of the most popular shoe brands yeah. in the world. You can go not only into specialty shoe retailers, but go into Kohl's or any other uh, large retail apparel places and they got Nikes galore. I, I don't think that's the issue. I think this is my hunch that this was an example of Brooks being very aware of how the tariffs were going to impact their business. They were very aggressive from the outset and they made changes to their supply chain. And I think Nike from everything that I've read being a shareholder, unfortunately, that they've been less aggressive and been hoping and waiting for things to change. And I think for a company like this shoe retailer who's stuck in the middle of this, when they're having to make that decision, what shoes are they going to put on the wall? They're going to put the ones that are going to sell at the lower price points with the higher profit margins. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I had a conversation with some family members uh, during Thanksgiving that came up that people are starting to notice that things are a little bit more expensive when they go to the store. And I you know, reminded them there, well, it's probably because of the tariffs. And that's why you're seeing the increase in cost of goods. Shut up about trade, Dan. We're trying to have fun, nerd. Pass the cranberry sauce, you idiot. (laughs) But I think uh, the American uh, purchaser is just starting to get a taste of the impact of these tariffs. Um, I don't think this Christmas season will have quite the bite. But if this continues on all through next year, I think next year, uh, I think uh, towards the end of next year, I think the American consumer is going to have a much greater understanding and appreciation for the impact of these tariffs on the bottom line of the goods that they're purchasing at these stores. That's my hunch. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna bet you, I'm gonna bet you a, a cocktail, a gentleman's cocktail uh, bet here. I will bet. Take whatever opposite you say. Okay. So if we sit down again on December, early December of 2020, do you think that there will not be lists? Let's just say three and four. Will they still be in place or will they be in place at all? I think they will. And the reason why is because if you look at the number of exclusions that are being approved, it's like we're going to put all these tariffs out there, but we're going to be bringing a bunch of them back. (laughs) (laughs) it's just it's a crazy shell game that's going on i i don't i see this as being the status quo for the foreseeable future i don't see any change on the horizon i just don't okay well i will take the opposite of that although i completely agree with you um and, and you know again it's it's one of these things where we should be happy right all this chaos and frustration and and just bedlam is great for us but um, it's pretty brutal. It's a pretty brutal environment to be working in right now. And our clients are miserable. It's amazing in our still relatively short career. I mean, I've been in this industry for uh, 
a little over 20 years, but how we went from coming into this industry, uh, you know, the, 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 the big word was globalism. You know, in 1994, you had a passage of NAFTA. You, you had the EU uh, that was established, the largest trading bloc in the world. Uh, we had the proliferation of uh, bilateral and multilateral free trade agreements uh, here in the U.S., 13 in total. Um, you know, globalism was a huge part of the last two decades, and now we're seeing a complete unraveling of that. Um, so it's interesting and it's a fun business to be part of. It's something. All right. Uh, are you, what would you give people advice on? I think I know the answer. If they wanted to try to manage this or deal with it, what would you tell them to do? Try to get their arms around it. I would start with data, lots and lots of data. Um, we're doing a lot of work for clients right now, uh, on miscellaneous tariff bill, uh, uh, helping them out with section 301 exclusions, um, looking at making decisions regarding foreign trade zones, looking for other duty recovery and duty minimization opportunities. And really the starting point of that is really going through data and getting an understanding of what it is that you import, where is your pain points in terms of duty exposure, um, and, 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 and using and manipulating the data uh, helps answers a lot of those questions. It provides at least some uh, pathways to go follow in terms mm -hmm. of seeking recovery or minimization. Yeah. Um, I, I remember for a long time now, you'd bring up first sale and people's eyes would gloss over, but now suddenly it's back. I mean, we have conversations about it constantly and that's, that's a really tough thing to do. It is. So, you know, we're at the point now where we're talking regularly about first sale, miscellaneous tariff act exclusions. These are not easy to do. But the numbers are so big, people are willing to, you know, put the sweat equity into it because they could save so much money. And it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago that people would just roll your eyes at you if you said, have you thought about first sale before? Shut up. No, it's just entirely different now. Yeah. And also, you're saying you're relatively short career. Dude, we are coming up on like 25 years of this crap. I don't know how to break it to you. Yeah. And we're not dead yet which is also shocking. <laughs> I've treated my body like an amusement park for the past 25 years. Um, and by the way, I don't know if, if the folks at wild Turkey ever listen to this podcast, but, uh, you need a sponsor. Really, yeah. Um, you know, I, I will, I will take a moment to say that uh, the good people at the world trade center have been wonderful about helping us to produce this podcast, get us guests, get the word out and distribute it. And our friends at cap logistics are also helping us with some production. They're wonderful. Um, but yeah, if there's a bourbon company, that wants to, uh, you know, I, I will drink it while I do this because this is Pete's time. This is, this is not, this is not crow's time. This is Pete's time. I will, I will put a, I will put a poster behind me of whatever bourbon company it is. I mean, I will be like Ricky Bobby in Talladega nights. I will have a jacket on covered in labels, Dan. I think a suit with like patches, you know, exactly. like wild turkey. Yeah. 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 You know, uh, trade, trade geek podcast brought to you by wild Turkey. And I, I would just, I would sit here with, with like a jacket on and behind me would just be like, you know, Matthew McConaughey sipping some wild Turkey. And, um, and we would do a count through the year of how many wild Turkey cocktails I have while I do trade geek podcast. I think that is one of the best ideas I've ever had. I don't think that, that they understand and many people listening to this know me well enough to know I'm not kidding. Like it's my house wine. 
So they should do something for Big Daddy and send me some free brown liquor. That's all I'm saying. Um, I don't. I don't who, what else could we get to 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 sponsor us? I mean, I don't think that's that's a tough one, man. I mean, we're this is a very limited. Our well, first for you, our Delta friends, Airlines. What'd you say? Oh, the airlines. For you, Delta Airlines. Yeah, airlines and um, Marriott Bonvoy. Yeah, right. I, you know, I spend more time in the uh, the, the what is it the Marriott um, courtyard by Marriott, mm-hmm. and um, uh, eating breakfast off of a styrofoam plate. That is, it's my life, man. You know. Um, so I got a question for you. Yeah. So did you see the uh, video of Justin Trudeau uh, at the NATO conference? <laughs> so Trump is obviously a little bit insulted by the video. Uh, we had, he announced earlier in the week about the imposition of additional tariffs as a result of the digital right. uh, taxes that they have in France. Boris Johnson was part of that little group. Uh, Trudeau, and I didn't catch the Macron. So what sort of impact do you think this might have on trade with the EU? Well, the November 15th deadline on the European automotive parts thing came and went. And, um, you know, thank Drew Brees that that happened after because he is going to burn down the village with this stuff. And I, I've said that a couple times today. There is less to lose with what he's doing with Europe, in my opinion, my opinion again, there's less to lose by putting the screws to them as long as he doesn't touch the third rail of automotive than there is with China and there is with Mexico and there is with Canada. And, um, you know, it's well-documented, man. He does not like Justin Trudeau. Right. So for all of the people to have decided to come out and throw a hand grenade in all of this, that was just... Talk about bad timing. Yeah. So I wouldn't want to be in that room, man. Wouldn't want to be in that room at all. I think it's going to make it worse. The thing between the US and the EU with, with Airbus, man, it's no joke. And now Airbus, now the Europeans are saying they've got the same issue with American manufacturers like Boeing. But I don't know how long, excuse me, how long is it going to take them to prove their point and you know get something through the WTO? I mean, by then, you and I will be retired, I hope. So who knows as slow as they move, but there's all kinds of other things that could get nasty on. It's amazing how quickly we went from the, uh, transatlantic partnership to oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> imposing <laughs> tariffs on anything and everything out of the EU to the transatlantic dumpster fire yeah, right. that we're, we're currently in. I remember, um, when we would pull iTrack data back in the day, and we get all excited if someone had a, a, you know, a duty burden of like five or six or 7%. Because most of them were like, like one, less than 1.5, right? It was really low yeah. in the 2000s. Yeah, now everybody we talked to is just swimming in it. Right. But what's, what's frustrating is, is the USDR did a good job of wrecking a lot of the things that we would do to try to help people with this. Um, foreign trade zones are kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're hamstrung on it. Uh, you can use drawback, which is good news on the 301s, but it's, you know, the, you gotta do some pretty, pretty serious stuff to get your way with this. Right. People are hurting, man. So, you know, the other one that I'm, I'm is India. I cannot believe, and I'm not hearing it. So I don't know about you, but I hear about China every day. I hear about Europe 
every day. And you know me, dude, like I am all about India and I have all these Indian folks I deal with. No one's talking about it. They're like, oh, GSP has gone and we're just managing. It'd be fine. Come on, man. Like, are you, are you kidding me? That was a major duty reduction program for you. And now it's out the window all over Iranian oil. So, and, and Trump and, and Modi are supposed to be homies. So I, I, yeah, that one's got me perplexed. I don't, Turkey, Turkey, I think is down the toilet. Right. But yeah, I thought would have been taken care of by now. So anyway, a um, couple more questions and I'll let you go back to um, staring at that blank wall behind you. <laughs> uh, from a compliance perspective, have things gotten weirder? Since the 301. Well, first off, the wall's blank because we've been through home remodel hell for the better part of the year and I've yet to hang anything in here. But um, is it, I'm sorry, anything gotten weird for what? Compliance on import compliance. Has customs gotten any stranger? Um, Not any stranger. I mean, I think, I think customs is still really challenged with. <clears throat> the baby boomer generation who's exited out of the organization and has been largely replaced by young college age kids who've come into the organization who don't really understand uh, supply chain, don't really understand your particular industry that they're supposed to be focused on. Um, I continue to get calls from clients who say, I've been importing the same thing for 10 years. I never had a problem with customs. Now I'm getting all these CF28s. What the heck's going on? And when you start talking to the people at customs, you begin to realize very quickly that uh, it's somebody who is new to the organization, doesn't understand your business, doesn't understand your product. And you're going to have to educate them. And it's a frustrating process. Um, We do our part as a consultant to kind of take that out of the hands of the client and help educate the folks there at Customs about the nuances of their product to help advocate on their behalf. Um, But I'd say that's one of the challenges that Customs continues to have right now. Um, Is there an uptick of enforcement? Yeah, I would say there has been. I've seen more 28s. There's a lot more questions around origin, more questions around potential transshipment. Uh, definitely more questions, a lot more questions on valuation that I'm seeing. Um, I think there's a growing concern at customs that there's some bad actors out there who yeah. are uh, trying to sidestep the Section 301 tariffs by partaking in certain valuation schemes. Uh, reclassification doesn't help you anymore. Damn near everything is you know under Covered. the scope now. but. Uh, there are games being played with valuation. There's no two ways about it. I think that's a that's a swamp you don't want to go walking in, man. I mean, no, valuation <laughs> is that's a great way to get your your forehead right. slapped by the shovel of wisdom. Yeah, I, I don't think that's a good one. I love the companies that say, "All right, we're going to cl- reclassify this product because it's not under the 301 tariffs, and we're going to have a two percent tariff on it instead of paying the 25 or whatever it is." You say, "Okay, well, you know, it was free before that." And you got to go back five years and report it. And once these go away, you still got to pay it. That seems like a, have you done the math on that? Because forever is a mighty long time. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't know how smart that was. And then the number of conversations I have that go just like this. So Pete, hypothetically, 
Hypothetically, if we had stuff to move from China to Hong Kong, hypothetically, and we were to do whatever, you know, bolt this onto that or, or um, paint it or whatever and send it to America, we're good, right? Hypothetically. I'm like, well, no, 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 Pro- probably almost indefinitely no. Uh, okay, well, what if we send it to Mexico? Or Taiwan, you're missing the point here. It's not where you transship, it's that you're transshipping product. <laughs> so this is, um, I hope this is truly a, uh, a hypothetical situation because, I mean, you'll be embracing the suck in a big way when our friends in the, in the suburbans and the, in the, the windbreakers show up to wreck your birthday party, man. It's, that's ugly. Yeah, I think part of it too is, uh, yeah, we're seeing an uptick of activity from customs, but they're probably very overwhelmed okay. by a lot of the bad actors and the, the games that are being played right now. But the thing that people can't lose sight of is the statute of limitations is five years. And you do have a liquidation cycle, 314 days. Uh, there is time for customs to come back and look. Uh, and they can achieve this through a number of mechanisms, one of them being uh, import focus assessment. I, I was speaking to a private equity group down in Dallas, um, I think it was last month or two months ago, and uh, was presenting to them and, and brought up import focus assessments. And this private equity group, they represented about 25 companies. Only one, I think one or two hands were raised when I asked if they ever heard of a customs audit. Wow. And it's not surprising. Um, I think a lot of companies don't recognize the fact that customs, uh, one of their chartered responsibilities is to collect revenue. And as a result, they go out and they audit companies to ensure that they are acting in accordance of statute and, and regulation. And, uh, you know, you get these panic calls from companies who have received a letter uh, and are learning the hard way um, that they are having uh, to step into an audit situation with the government and and learning about uh, along the the way, some of the bad processes they've had, particularly around things such as dutiable assist, uh, misclassification, even basic things such as lacking internal control in the organization. Uh, That's an area that we help a lot of clients. Uh, We do a lot of mock compliance work for clients um, help identify where there may be risk or challenges in their organization. And they come up with uh, procedures and processes to help make their organization compliant. In certain cases, and in a lot of cases, we identify violations or other issues and we work with the client and help resolving those with the government and take advantage of voluntary disclosure where you can go to the government and plea a mea capa and uh, be able to receive reduced penalty benefits by coming to them with a violation mm-hmm. instead of waiting for them to come to you. Um, so I, I think those are kind of some of the challenges I'm seeing right now uh, with regards to compliance and enforcement. Wow. Yeah. Uh, do you think that all the immigration stuff and the, the drain on resources had anything to do with it? Um. You know, I, I was part 
uh, of the TSN group and would get updates on how many people they were pulling out of ports to bring down to the southern border to help relieve personnel, that could have had an impact. It wouldn't surprise me if it, if it has. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, for companies who are bad actors, either purposely or just not knowingly, uh, I think customs historically has shown that they do a pretty good job of tracking those people down. Oh, yeah. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't think you're getting away from it. It's, it's sooner or later, sooner or later, justice comes to us all when it comes yeah. to CBP. Um, that's one thing, you know, Ed and Dick taught us is they're not bad guys for doing their job. Right. You know, this is their job. They're supposed to find people who are breaking the rules and you can't get upset with them because they happen to find somebody who broke the rules. It's your job now to make it a little less crappy for the people that hired us. So I've never forgotten that, you know? All right. Well, I've kept you here long enough. You have hours to bill. All right. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get back to work. Yeah. But what I want to say um, before we go, you are without question, the greatest customs broker I've ever worked with. And I would not be able to do my job with any degree of success if it weren't for you. And, uh, I'm just incredibly blessed and, um, and and very fortunate that you have been stupid enough to follow me from company to company. And uh, I can't do it without you, man. So thank you so much for everything you do for me. Thank you. And uh, love you. Hugs and kisses. Love you. Love thank you, you for having me on here. I guess we're going to the prom now. All right. Yes. Thanks, everybody, Bye-bye. for joining us at uh, the Trade Geek Podcast. And we will be back with another episode next week. Thank you, Dan Swartz with Crow LLP for joining us. And uh, everybody, be compliant out there. Thanks. <laughs>